This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. We've had remarkable success controlling the spread of COVID-19 in B.C., but care providers say it is too early to relax visitor restrictions on long-term care homes. The hotel industry is facing a lengthy recovery with an incredible amount of uncertainty and possible closures. So how prevalent are the fears of bankruptcy? And after months of skyrocketing unemployment numbers, some good news this morning. We're talking about Canada's economy today, and we've talked a lot about how domestic businesses of all kinds have just been devastated by the pandemic. There's a new report out from Statistics Canada today that shows Canada's trade deficit actually doubled in April. We wanted to talk more about this. So joining us now is Dr. Stephen Tapp, the Deputy Chief Economist at Export Development Canada. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be on the show. Well, can you explain to me these numbers and what do they mean? Uh, well, we've had uh, data now come out for a couple months uh, through these COVID lockdowns. And, and as you guys mentioned just off the top this morning, uh, there are actually some positive statistics this morning for the Labour Force Survey. So we just have some data this morning showing that uh, jobs are coming back in Canada. So there's been a pretty massive decline. Um, but uh, there's a little bit of a rebound coming through uh, most recent data for last month. So uh, the data here you're, you wanted to chat with me about is the trade data. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a decline of about, I would say, of roughly a third uh, for the first few months of the lockdowns for Canadian trade. So it's it's one of these uh, indicators which is roughly in line with, with what else we're seeing in the economy. It's a pretty massive shock as we as we are following the economy. We're looking you know, every month right. and seeing, well, it's pretty big, it's pretty bad. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's down a little bit. Is that, hoping, uh, yeah, is, that, is that what we expected? Is that what we expected, or like what did we think was it's, going to happen? Well, as I say, it's down by about a third. That's a little bit from the data we got yesterday. It's a little bit worse than than I had thought uh, would have been the case uh, for the data that we had. But um, it, we're we're really kind of in calibration mode right now, trying to figure out what's what's the kind of when does the drop stop? You know, when are when are we getting a point where we can turn a corner and start to a little bit better? One of the things that uh, we've seen in the data is. The trade with the U.S. Uh, is is stopped uh, quite considerably for things like uh, crude oil. So energy prices have fallen a lot. Uh, the cars, so a lot of a lot of auto plants have been shut down. Uh, some of the planes, as well as so some kind of very high value products, uh, mm-hmm. not not moving across the border as much, and uh, disruptions there. Um, so that that's kind of the bad news. But on the other side of things, we have seen uh, trade with some of the Asian economies. So in China, in particular, uh, but also Japan and South Korea. Canada's exports increased uh, to those countries. And so those are the places where COVID happened earlier and the COVID had kind of containment strategies had, had come off, kind of, you know, could um, restrain the virus and kind of come off a little bit. So we're starting, we're just kind of starting to see now a little bit of pickup in some of the data sources right now. So what do we need to have happen to make those numbers even better? Is that, are we looking at essential, we have to wait until the border opens with the United States? Uh, I, I think that, well, the, the border is uh, is sort of closed now to non-essential business and travel, so that's going to be a pretty big impingement upon uh, you know a lot of the business flows that are still going on. Um, but like I said, we're down about a third from kind of usual traffic. Um, we we see you know some of these are going to be hit for longer periods of time. So things like um, just just the general flow of tourism. So you know Americans coming over the to, into the U.S. border, spending for the summer. Um, that's not likely to be a very good uh, season at all for kind of international travel. 
Um, so we're, I think we're probably seeing more more domestic travel, people kind of staying close to home and looking for places they can find to do staycations, those kind of things. Um, but yeah, reopening the border will certainly uh, get things get things going, and that's uh, to be decided once you know once the authorities think that it's uh, it's safe to do so. Is it going to be a little bit tougher, perhaps, because you do have this kind of uneven situation across the country, right? You've got a place like BC where you know most things are open at this point, and you've got other provinces where they're not even close. Yeah, I've noticed you guys are doing actually quite well in the COVID statistics that uh, people have been tracking. So BC was, uh, I think, early off the gate to to impose some of these containment uh, measures and has done a much better job than some of the other jurisdictions in, in keeping things in line. So uh, that is one of the challenges uh, with Canada's economy. You've got some unevenness across jurisdictions. It's also the case internationally. So I mentioned before, uh, we have places like uh, like China and like South Korea and others that are they're coming back online. So they were really shut down for most of uh, a lot of January, a lot of February. And then as they contain things, they kind of come back online. They're able to get their factories back up. Um, but that's the big issue of kind of coordination is do they have buyers? So now, now as, you know, as other places like in, in Europe and in North America are still, you know, for the most part in lockdown mode across a lot of the big uh, parts of the economies, uh, there's, they're kind of looking for buyers and sellers working together at the same time. So should we then take this time to think about, well, obviously we're so reliant on the United States. You talked about some diversification there, sending products other to other countries. Should we be doing more of that? So, yeah, diversification has been, been a big push uh, for this government, and I would say for, for many governments before. Uh, we, we do rely to a large extent on, on the U.S. economy. Uh, it's, it's about, I would say, roughly three-quarters of our goods exports uh, go to the U.S., so it's, it's a big chunk. And when, when we look at the data, that's, that's been the area that's been hit, uh, been hit hardest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're our closest, you know, our closest neighbor and closest ally and business partner as well, so that's not surprising. But, yeah, the, I think the bigger-term push for, uh, for diversification is, has been really important uh, as, as Trump's come to power and you've seen the United States kind of try to go it alone on some of these international uh, treaties and things that, that, you know, Canada has been looking for, for buyers of their markets. Uh, we've seen some success in Europe. So this uh, new trade deal that we have with Europe, there's been some take up there, some more trade there. And the bigger longer term play is, is in Asia. So certainly uh, trading with, with uh, the, the countries I mentioned before, that's, that's where people see a lot more growth and a lot more consumers outside of the country than inside. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time on this. Okay, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Stevens Tapp, a Deputy Chief Economist at Export Development Canada, talking about Canada's trade deficit. It doubled to $3.3 billion in the month of April. And that is, of course, because of COVID-19 really hitting hard, uh, of course, in our imports and exports. We are sending more things overseas to countries like South Korea and Japan, as Dr. Tapp just mentioned there. But we can't get around the fact that our main trading partner is the United States, and they are still very much uh, in a lot of places, just just starting to recover, and some industries, right, like the airline industry and things like that, uh, still in a very tough place. So it sounds like we have a ways to go on that. And he mentioned the labor force market survey, the one that looks at jobs in depth about where they're being lost and where they're adding jobs. We actually did add some jobs last month, two hundred eighty nine thousand, which is great. Uh, however, more people were looking for work, such as post secondary students, which drove up the unemployment number a little bit to something like 13.7%. So there's more to come on that today as well. This is Mornings with Simi. 
But we all heard the story this week, right? That the former U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, came out this week and attacked President Donald Trump, he said, for being a president that divides the country instead of uniting it. Now, that is just the most recent case example of someone formerly in the president's administration then turning on him publicly afterwards. Global News commentator Matthew Fisher has a new piece out this morning that highlights some interesting points about the impact that this might have, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Matthew, thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Simi. What did you find uh, most interesting about this? What do you think the biggest impact is going to be? Well, it's quite extraordinary that uh, General Mattis uh, and many other American commanders uh, subsequently have denounced Trump. There is a long tradition of you uh, don't go after the commander in chief, even in retirement. And uh, Mattis has retired. Uh, And uh, the words are so strong And of all the people who have spoken, they matter the most when they come from General Mattis because he is a a mythical uh, warrior in in the pantheon of American military commanders, certainly of this generation. Uh, What he did in the Middle East uh, with the Marines uh, in 2003, how he commanded uh, uh, U.S. forces uh, in the Middle East, what he did uh, uh, as a Secretary of Defense, 44 years in the military, two years as Secretary of Defense. He he is a man who has incredible credibility, and it crosses over. We don't have these commanders in Canada, military commanders, uh, that we admire and respect so much as they do in the United States. And for this man to go after Donald Trump spells big trouble for the president, bigger trouble maybe than he's had before. It seems to me, though, that most of the military people who have been speaking out about this, other than Mark Esper, who's the secretary, current Secretary of Defense, most of them are, are retired. Did that make a difference, do you think? Uh, well, it's safer, obviously, for them to speak in retirement because it ends their careers. But a number of American serving commanders have spoken about it. They were not so critical of the president. They didn't invoke his name and what they had to say, but the Secretary of the Air Force, Goldfine, spoke about it this week as his top enlisted man. The commander of the U.S. Navy, Admiral Gilday, uh, had a commentary yesterday. Other people are speaking out, but the serving members cannot make their attacks personal. That's the difference uh, with what retired people can make. Uh, But all of this speaks to Trump's isolation, his isolation and his response to the horrible events in Minnesota, uh, but also his use of combat forces on American streets. This is really extraordinary. Uh, The powers only exist really for a time of civil war. And as bad as things may be in America right now, it certainly is not a civil war. And do you think that was that was kind of the turning point? for, for uh, people in the military is saying that, oh, I'm going to bring out the military to help police streets. Was that just one step too far? I think it is one step too far. Support was already slipping for the president. You know, almost all the military are Republicans. They just are and have been for quite some time. But the border wall uh, with Mexico, which um, um, regular force troops were called upon to patrol and help defend uh, was uh, something that cost uh, 
Uh, Trump, according to the polls, 20 percent of the support. His support dropped from about 63 percent to 43 uh, percent late last year. And now who knows where it is headed uh, with uh, this uh, latest action. But the, uh, Mattis was not only speaking to the troops. He was speaking to the American nation. He was, in effect, throwing down a gauntlet. You have a choice to make in November and this president does not believe in democracy. He does not follow the Constitution. And the soldiers are not duty-bound to follow the commander-in-chief. They're duty-bound to follow the Constitution of the United States. All right, Matthew, thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you very much. Hope to speak with you again. We will be talking to you. That's Matthew Fisher, military journalist and global news commentator, talking about what uh, happened in the United States this week. Now, we may read the story and go, okay, that's interesting. Matthew's pointing out, though, there's an awful lot simmering below the surface in the relationship between the president and the military to have set the stage for something like what we saw this week. This is Mornings with Simi. Another big impact for families has been the fact that we have had to really curtail, if not completely cut out, people who visit loved ones, relatives in long-term care homes. And one of the ways that, you know, we think we've managed to get a hold of COVID-19 in this province is because, you know, the provincial health officials tackled that so quickly by putting in new rules in place for that. So now that things are, you know, getting better, we think, is it time to think about relaxing some of those restrictions? There's an awful lot of people out there who would like to go and see their loved ones again in person. So is it safe, do we think, to do that? Well, joining us now to talk about that issue is the CEO of Safe Care BC, Jen Lyle, and the Director of Community Engagement at Menno Place for more on that. That's Sharon Simpson and Jen Lyle who join us now. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for Good morning. Having. Uh, Jen, I'll start with you. Do you think we can do this safely? Is it time to open up some visitation to long-term care homes? Yeah, I think like with anything, and you did a great job of sort of prefacing why we've put these practices into place. The answer is it's complicated. Um, You know, I think by and large, and first of all, I want to recognize that this is really hard. It's hard for the families. It's hard for the residents. um, it's, It's hard for the staff. There's an element of moral distress to it. But at the end of the day, there's there's one way that COVID-19 primarily gets into care homes, and that's through the front door. And, you know, I think we've all seen what's, what's potentially at stake when there are outbreaks in, in long-term care. And so, although I can, I can appreciate that you know, perhaps we're all getting a little bit of pandemic fatigue, we're seeing the, the indicators go in the right way, um, it's vitally important that we remember that until there is a treatment, until there is a vaccine, um, we there is no going back to, to that normal. We are very much mm-hmm. in a state that requires that vigilance because of what's at stake. doesn't mean that visits can't happen, but what it does mean is that we have to address some of those hurdles, some of those safety considerations right. so that so that we can do that safely. Now, Sharon, even if we can have visitors come back to care homes, what would that be like at Menno Place? Well, it's going to be a different kind of way of visiting. I think people are used to being able to just walk in, spend all day with their loved one, or have groups of people come and hang out. And I mean, we create a really fun environment when we have visitors. So it's it's going to be different. It'll be one person. It's going to be in a safe kind of environment. You can see on the internet, some places are putting plexiglass pods together for visiting. 
Um, it's not going to be touching. It's it's going to be some of those pieces that is that are more difficult. Uh, to people want to hug and touch, and I mean we're social beings, right? Yeah. So to bring it back, it's going to have to be something that's that's very safe. Probably the the visitor is going to be wearing some PPE, and uh, and you know for people who are are living with dementia, they don't always recognize people. It's hard to recognize people with their mask on, and so there's going to be some really big changes, and those are going to not necessarily satisfy what people are longing for, um, but they're really important to have. What has it been like for residents at Menno Place? It must be hard for them to not be able to get those visits. Well, sure. They they don't understand. A lot of people don't understand why they don't have visitors. Um, we've put in place an amazing Zoom call uh, booking system. Our, our family members and loved ones, anyone, uh, their loved ones can book online and our recreation staff have a 50-inch TV that they bring around to to uh, your appointment and you can see your loved one in that space, that's been awesome. And to watch those residents respond uh, has been very powerful. To see them just, you know, they cry. They see the person that they love. They don't understand why that person's on television, but it's good nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, Right, every little bit yeah. counts here. So, um, yeah. Jen, then how do we deal with this moving forward? Is this going to be like a, a universal system, do you think, that we put into place? Or is every care home going to be left to deal with this on their own? Their safety issue. It's there's not going to be a one size fits all solution for each care home, and they're going to have to look at their own pool of resources, uh, their own physical environment, how the care home is designed in terms of what they can safely accommodate. Uh, and I'll I'll give you an example. So, you know, prior Sharon mentioned this already, but prior to the pandemic, you could just basically some restrictions, but you could more or less just walk into the care home and have a visit with your loved one. Now, uh, you know, we have to do things like screening for symptoms. So there's a staff member that screens people coming in for symptoms. If you are going to be within the building, you need to wear some form of PPE. So you have to be trained on how to don and doff it properly. There may be some form of supervision required or some additional support for the resident. And we're trying to do all of that, all of those sort of quote-unquote new activities with the same level of staffing resources that we Mm -hmm. had prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it will look a little bit different because, for example, outdoor visits are wonderful, except when it rains, of course, and what, yeah. do you, what do you do then, right? Or, you know, you may have a visit that's scheduled, uh, people are looking forward to it, but then you have a staff member who calls in sick, and now you're short-staffed. So how do, you, how do you navigate that situation safely? You know, do you, have the, do you have the space on your property to build an external pod? Um, all of those things will really require sort of that, that discussion with staff, the discussion with the safety committees, so that, you know, each care home can devise its own solution that's going to work to keep people safe. So then can we agree, Sharon, it sounds like it's going to be a while then before people can expect anything like the visits that they remember. I think so. I'm, and I think it's going to take some some really good education to help people um, understand what those pieces are. When, when we start hearing about reopening in our province and, you know, you can go to the restaurant. I had a, a family member phone me and say they're going to come from Prince George for their mom's birthday and they're going to take her to a restaurant. And I had to tell her, you can't even come into the building. Like, it's going to be nothing like what you're thinking. So the expectation um, gap with reality, that's mm-hmm. something that we have to really help people journey through because it's not, it's not going to be the same. And then, and then finding ways that we can just make it special. Like, for now, uh, we have essential deliveries only. And I think 
you know, we've got to maybe have some other deliveries like chocolate bars and right. flowers and things that, you know, how do you celebrate somebody's 95th birthday without anything to them and seeing yeah. them? It, it becomes really, uh, it's, it's, um, it's morally hard for families. Like it's really hard. So finding a way that we, that we can um, give some pieces mm-hmm. back to people, normal things. You don't miss birthdays for the person that, you know, raised you. <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, so we have to, we have to figure that out. And, and, and family members are anxious. You know, there's so much talk about what has happened in uh, other care homes. That's really not been good care and they're worried and they want to see their loved one in that, in that environment. Right. Or is my loved one okay? That's part of the angst of it is, is, you know, I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. I need eyes on. And, uh, and, that, and that can be done without being there physically. But we have never uh, brought video cameras and things like that into our spaces. So it's all radical change. Yeah. And we're working our way through it. Thanks to both of you for being with us today. Thank you so Thanks much, Finn. Sharon Simpson, Director of Community Engagement at Menno Place in Abbotsford and Jen Lyle, Safe Care BC CEO. This is Mornings with Simi. Some fascinating information came out of that daily update from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, showing that new testing has told us where the most recent cases of COVID-19 in BC came from. And it turns out they're actually a variation on the initial strain that is believed to have originated in China. So how how does this happen, all these different strains, and how do they map it? Well, we're joined now by UBC epidemiologist Stephen Hopshin-Can for more on what that means. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here, Simi. So when we hear about the way this virus has moved, is that normal? Is that how a virus generally progresses around the world and slightly mutates? Yes, it does, because, you know, each individual infection, there's many tens of thousands of viruses produced, and we've had over uh, 6 million people that have been infected, so that's gone through a lot of different people, and it changes with time. How difficult is it then to map something like that? Um, Well, it makes it easier. I mean, it's a lot of work uh, sequencing uh, each uh, individual's infection, but... Um, it makes it easier to see, you know, where the most recent strains have come from, uh, uh, different parts of the world and how they're spreading uh, locally. Right. It sounds like there's quite a few different strains, though, of COVID-19. Well, one strain and, and many sub-strains. So they're just uh, uh, slight variations uh, um, on, the original, on the original strain, uh, but they do change a little bit over time. And what do those changes mean? Does it mean a change in symptoms? Is it just a, a makeup of the structure of the virus? Like, what does that mean? Um, it can mean a lot of things. Uh, it could mean a change in in the virus itself, like uh, how uh, aggressive it is. Uh, some substrains may cause more worse uh, or more aggressive disease than others, or it just may mean no uh, uh, no. no no real change at all in that respect. So we, we don't really know um, if there are substrains being developed that are are um, more virulent than others, but um, that's sort of something we can see over time. So would there continue to be more substrains? Yeah, it'll continue to change. And the thing that's really important is are some of the um, some of the uh, components of it that we're developing vaccines against. Uh, we're hoping those will remain the same uh, because the vaccines were originally developed against some of the earlier strains. 
Right. So that's what makes it so challenging then. And when we talk about why vaccine production could take, you know, another year, is it because they you want to make sure you get everything that this virus is all about, despite all these different strains? Um, well, you want to you want to test it. So the testing takes a long time. But then once once the testing is done and you've um, produced enough vaccine to treat uh, individuals, um, you want, you hope that the strain that's circulating, you know, six months uh, to a year from now are, are the same as what the vaccine was developed on. Right. So that's just like the flu vaccine. Yeah, kind of like the flu vaccine. Uh, a lot of the vaccines that are being developed are quite conventional and similar to what we've done with the flu. So what are you going to be looking for in all the research that's being done? What do you find most interesting? Um, well, it's interesting to see, you know, what strains are circulating locally um, it shows, you know, you, you see early on some strains from China and Iran, and then and later on uh, strains that came from uh, Washington State, which, you know, reinforces, um, you know, the, the border controls that we had uh, early on in this pandemic. And then we see other strains from Europe, um, which suggest, you know, people uh, coming in from that region uh, were uh, responsible for it spreading locally as well. Oh, it is certainly fascinating. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Great to talk with you. That is Stephen Hopson Cannon, an epidemiologist at UBC. So that explains why, you know how some years you get the flu vaccine and then you think, I still got the flu. Oh, it's useless. Well, no, no, this actually explains it perfectly. It means the flu vaccine is generally based on the earlier strains of the flu that they see popping up early in flu season. And then they hope that that's the same strain that hits us later in the year. And maybe it's not. Maybe it has mutated. Maybe it has changed enough so that the flu vaccine doesn't work anymore. But it's kind of a similar principle now of what they're seeing with COVID-19. The, what we see mixing here in BC is different substrains coming from all different parts of the world, all originating, of course, as they believe, from the one source there in China. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is the end of the first week back in class, sort of, for some students across the province. I mean, turnout was not huge, uh, but still it was a way to ease people back into thinking we're heading back to the classrooms, particularly in September. It was a good, I guess, practice exercise, but let's find out how it went. Joining us now, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So how would you rate this? How, what kind of grade would you give the first week back? Well, we knew it was going to be challenging and difficult, and we were also pretty sure the numbers would be quite low, you know, between 30 and 35% provincially. There's some indications that, you know, the um, enrollment is slightly increasing towards the end of the week, um, but, you know, it's a very challenging environment. Uh, we've asked a lot of our teachers in BC, you know, first to go to remote learning, take everything remotely, and, and now, you know, bring it back into schools. It's been... Uh, extraordinarily challenging uh, time, and uh, obviously under the under the whole you know atmosphere of the stress and anxiety of, an, of a pandemic. So I would say it's absolutely been challenging. Would so? What did it look like from the teacher perspective? Then were they are they okay? What have you heard from teachers on this? So there are a few things. Uh, one is you know teachers are very happy to see their students. And um, and for the most part, it sounds like, you know, um, students coming back uh, understood it would be different, uh, and it certainly is. And so the, while classes are small, 
you know, I think there's been a lot of satisfaction in seeing students, um, you know, face-to-face. Uh, and so that's been really good. You know, we know that remote learning doesn't work for all of our students, particularly our students with special needs and our more vulnerable learners. Uh, and I, so I think it's been good to, um, you know, get see some of those students coming back. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll continue to see that as uh, the weeks go on here. Uh, and what have you heard about layoffs? I know some districts were concerned about layoffs of teachers because of a decline in enrollment in international students, but the minister has been saying otherwise. But what have you heard? Well, there there have been. You know, districts are looking at um, layoffs. They're, they're certainly considering that. Uh, we've had well, at least one school district office um, send some layoff notices. And so that's another thing that is causing a lot mm-hmm. of stress right now. Um, you know, what uh, What I think needs to happen is this needs to really careful, con- carefully consider those uh, layoffs because the decline in international students is temporary. Um, once you kind of fold up a program, uh, it's really difficult to get it going again. And so some districts are being, you know, pretty forward-thinking in terms of finding uh, maybe t- perhaps different type of work to support that program um, while, you know, they, they anticipate the numbers are going to be down. We still don't know what those numbers are going to look like. I mean, obviously, they're going to be down. They, they're not going to be, it's not going to be completely eradicated. The international, you know, some international students actually stayed in Canada. And so, you know, I know that there's a lot of concern around a decline in budgets for districts that rely on that money right. from international students. There's been some discussion as well about potentially, you know, getting those teachers to work on online learning in case not every child comes back in September. Do you think that would work? Well, I think there's a lot of different creative solutions that can be found. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that districts are, are looking at, at those solutions as opposed to laying teachers off. We're also in a teacher shortage. And so, you know, um, it, it seems quite short-sighted that you would uh, lay teachers off when there's lots of work, including, you know, a real lack of uh, teachers teaching on call to replace teachers when they're ill. Okay, so, so how much time is left here kind of in the school year? We know we went back to school this week. Do we foresee that for the rest of June, or, or are we done? Well, I think, you know, I think the intention is to continue um, through the end of June when, when schools would typically close. It'll be interesting to see, you know, how um, many students continue to, to attend. Um, but one other thing that we're working on, which um, has been somewhat distressing, I think, and adding to all of the anxiety, is that some districts, we have teachers that are identified as vulnerable workers, mm-hmm. and so they quite rightly are, are uh, under their doctor's direction seeking medical accommodations. And we've had some districts really um, push back on that. Other districts have been doing a phenomenally compassionate job of uh, accommodating these, these teachers. Uh, obviously, the majority of our students are still learning remotely, and so there's no reason why teachers can't be accommodated. And so that's been the, a lot of our work this week, is looking at, you know, those immune-compromised uh, teachers, those teachers with uh, respiratory disease, heart disease, that are seeking accommodations, and in some cases, those are being refused. So we're still mm-hmm. working through that dynamic as well, which is really added to the stress for local leaders and, and those teachers involved. So what would you like to see still happen here? What still needs to be done, do you think, to push us in the right direction? So we really need to be careful around um, teacher workloads still. You know, teachers can't remotely teach the majority of their students and, you know, have some of them in class. And so what we need to start to do right now in June is look forward to September as well. 
you know, we went into emergency learning in June, and, and it happened really quickly, and it was certainly not the best of models. And so what really needs to start happening now is we need to look forward and, and do this in a more planned and deliberate way for September to ensure that it's much more smooth and there's, um, you know, uh, regardless of the stage we're in, that it works for both students and teachers. And so some of that needs to start happening now. All right. Well, thank you very much for keeping us up to date. Thanks so much, Simi. Appreciate that. Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, giving us an update on how the first week of school went from the teacher perspective. Would love to hear from more parents on this as well. It wasn't much time in class, uh, but it was kind of letting kids get back in there if, you know, parents wanted them to or if, if the kids wanted to just to see what it's like, try it out. Let me know how it went for you. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We're really looking to the provincial and the federal government to make sure that people aren't going to lose their jobs um, during this period um, in an industry that is going to come back, but it's going to take a number of years to get there. Okay, so that was the executive director of British Columbia's Union for Hotel and Hospitality Workers, Robert DeMann. He spoke with us yesterday. And there is no doubt the hotel industry is in crisis. Every other industry seems to be going slowly back to work, right, whether it's restaurants or what have you. But when it comes to the tourism sector and hotels in particular, there's still a lot of devastation there. So joining me now to talk more about this is the CEO of the BC Hotel Association, Ingrid Jarrett. Ingrid, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, does it feel like a lot of other industries are opening and you want to say, hey, hotels are still stuck here? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, we have 60% of hotels in the province open. And when we were deemed an essential service, it allowed hotel owners and operators to determine, you know, if they could afford to stay open. And um, therefore, 60% have, and we have 40% who are currently remain closed. And, um, you know, it's uh, to reopen a hotel is an expensive proposition. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be some um, confidence in the market that, um, that they're going to be able to, in fact, afford to reopen. So, you know, you're right. It's a... It's an absolutely dreadful time, and it's heartbreaking when you look at the number of people laid off, the number of businesses that are really heading towards insolvency if we don't save the summer, and if we don't get additional support from both the federal and provincial government for some key uh, opportunities to ensure that they survive. Now, I had a number of emails yesterday from hotel workers after we talked about this, and many of them pointed out that the same thing in that, you know, the hotel may reopen, but that doesn't mean they'll have the same number of staff there. Well, that's exactly right. You know, we're uh, forecasting, and, you know, this is both government forecasts and industry forecasts are looking at seriously reduced numbers for the summer. I think some resort areas around the province will have a a pretty strong demand uh, because people are, you know, there's a pent-up demand. People Mm -hmm. want to travel, and I know reservations are are currently being made, which is a promising sign. But uh, so much of our market has been closed down, and that would be the international market and the group uh, sort of corporate market, which really feeds a lot of our urban center hotels. So, um, you know, we're working hard uh, with Destination BC and with our industry counterparts and 
We've uh, been our, our best practices, health and safety plans have all been approved by the by the provincial health authority, mm-hmm. as well as WorkSafe BC. And you know, a lot of hotels right now are, you know, developing their safety plans and training their staff and bringing them back on. But some of them are continuing to be closed until they can actually see that that uh, they can afford to do so. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah, I can imagine. You talked about some help that could, you know, that the industry could use. What can the different levels of government do? Well, um, you know, the most important thing federally for us is that the the, uh, wage subsidy, uh, you know, our ask is that 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 continues until we reach 70% of last year's numbers by month. So that means that they, the hotels would be able to rehire uh, their employees more quickly if mm-hmm. that wage subsidy lasts. Currently, it's scheduled to end at the end of August. Um, provincially, the first, I mean, the critical piece is that the temporary layoff time, which is under the labor code, uh, they've extended it for 16 weeks, but in fact, that will mean that the third week of June for most uh, businesses will have to sever the employee-employer relationship based on that regulation in the BC Labor Code. Right. And none of the employers want to sever that relationship. In fact, they can't afford to because it actually uh, demands that they pay severance pay mm. to all of the laid-off employees. Now, the, the employees are the, are the single most important uh, piece that they have in their businesses to run their businesses, and nobody wants to sever that employee-employer relationship. So, you know, we're, we're really advocating uh, strongly for this, and we have many, many, many uh, industry sectors that are supporting it. Mm-hmm. Um, our hope is that government understands the undue stress and hardship that is placed on an already crippled industry because of just this one regulatory framework. Well, we and, will. Well, we'll try, we'll follow up on that for sure, Ingrid. And I know we'll be back in touch to talk more about this. But thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. That is Ingrid Jarrett, President and CEO of the BC Hotel Association. They certainly could use a lot of people vacationing in BC this year and staying at local hotels for sure. If you're planning on doing that, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So lots being made out of the any bit of good news that we can squeeze out of those unemployment numbers that came out this morning. Statistics Canada released their labor force survey for the month of May. So we thought let's break down those numbers a little bit more for you. Joining us now is Ken Peacock, chief economist and vice president at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Good morning, Simi. How do you view the numbers? I, I view them as good news. Um, we got to keep them in context, but. It's good news, and I say good news because, well, first of all, just so your listeners know, uh, BC saw employment rise by 43,000 jobs. Most people were expecting a decline. I was expecting a, a small decline, maybe, maybe maybe no decline, just because most of the layoffs probably had already happened related to the, 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 shutting, the shuttering of consumer businesses. But uh, good news, Simi, and just, just briefly um, bef- before I stop, just so your listeners know, I mean, in the previous two months, we lost 400,000 jobs. So uh, a rebound of 43,000 is great news and very welcome, but we still are in the hole of around 350,000 jobs. That's a big number. 
and the unemployment rate did did go up. So so we can get into some of those details uh, if yeah. you like. Right, because then people wonder, well, how can there be good news if the unemployment rate actually went up? Sure. So so what happened is more people got called back to work, uh, employment rose, but people who were kind of sitting on the sidelines saying, I'm not going to look for work this month, looked at the reopening, thought, thought maybe there were some prospects for, for getting a job. So more people flowed into the labor force and, and the labor market, uh, that outstripped the, the increase in employment. So, so we saw the unemployment rate rise by a couple percentage points. And it currently sits at 13.4% in BC. So that's a, fa- a fairly high unemployment rate. It is. But do you think, like, given that when they take these numbers, they take them for what? It's like one week in the middle of May. And a lot of stuff opened up after that. Well, this is this is a good point. This is an excellent point to me. So this is another reason why I, I take this read of the Labor Force Survey as good news, because you're precisely right. Uh, they took the survey of, of Canadians and whether or not they're working, Statistics Canada did, it right in the middle of the month. Um, and it wasn't about till three or four days later that BC reopened uh, restaurants and retail. So it's a bit surprising that we did see this bounce. But if you think about it, a lot of businesses were, would have anticipated the reopening. They would have recalled some people. And you did see um, the increase in employment in the areas that were hard hit. So the retail space saw a fairly big lift and the food services sector also saw a fairly, a fairly big lift. Uh, as did the healthcare sector, interestingly. More people are employed in the private sector and healthcare took a big hit when, you know, dentist's office and other things were shuttered. So we right. saw a big upward move in healthcare as well, Timmy. So given all that, right, the limitations of the numbers and when they were gathered and everything that opened, what do you expect to see in the next set of numbers, Ken? Like, in order to have two good months, you think, out of those numbers, what do you want to see next month? Not, I'd like to see a larger number than the 40,000. And I say that because it'll be the first month where the survey captures a, a full month of reopening. So I would, if if I saw anything less than sixty, forty to sixty thousand, that would be a that would be a disappointment. What I'm hoping for, Simi, is that over the next few months we see another forty, fifty, sixty thousand increase, so that by the third quarter, if we regained sort of half of all the jobs that had been lost in the previous couple of months, that would be a pretty good news story for British Columbia. A lot of economists are talking about a very muted, slow recovery particularly on the employment front. So, so if BC could get back half of those jobs, mm-hmm. uh, but like I said, by the third quarter, I, I would be happy. Do you think BC is trending in that direction? I, I, th- I think we are. We're, we didn't get quite as hard hit as uh, some other provinces. Our construction sector didn't close fully. Um, our retail sales have not fallen as far as, as some other provinces. So we're relatively well positioned. But, but I do need to emphasize uh, 350,000 lost jobs is a huge number. It, it's massive, and not all uh, businesses are going to reopen, and so it's going to take time for people to retrain and reallocate and, and move to other sectors. And when I think about uh, the tourism and the likelihood that international travel is going to remain mostly closed for, for much of the year, if not right through to the end of the year, and large events are also going to remain closed, you know, this is this is going to continue to weigh on the uh, employment prospects and the recovery prospects. And this is why I see sort of a, a, a fairly rapid rebound to regain those half, maybe even two thirds of lost jobs. But to get the rest of the way back is, is going to take some time, maybe maybe a couple of years even. Well, I have a feeling we'll be talking to you again. So, Ken, thank you.
You're very welcome. That's Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Going through those numbers uh, with us, that is Statistics Canada released their labor force survey for the month of May. But keep in mind, when you are hearing these numbers or about these numbers on the news or in the news today, that they were really measured one week in the month of May. And it was the middle of May. And here in BC, we know the employment picture at the middle of May was very different what it was at the end of May, right? That's when we started uh, phase two things started opening up. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's open now that wasn't open at that point when they measured these numbers. So as Ken points out, next month's numbers, we do expect to see more people getting back to work in this province. But will it be enough to show that we are on the right track? Those are the questions.